we will move on now uh, with the main programme. And it's to, I suppose you could say, a relatively controversial area, depending on your perspective. Uh, I'm joined this morning in studio by Peter Boylan, uh, former master of the National Maternity Hospital and a vocal campaigner on some of the more controversial issues surrounding women's health care over the years. You've written a book, a sort of autobiography and a social history, you say, and it's called In the Shadow of the Eight, My 40 Years Working for Women's Health in Ireland. So you're very welcome indeed to the programme. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, Now, the National Maternity Hospital is due to move from Hollis Street to St Vincent's down the road uh, from where we are at the moment. Um, Everyone, including you, I gather, is in agreement that a new hospital is badly needed. But you say in the book that you're reliably informed that the Sisters of Charity and the Archdiocese of Dublin are at loggerheads over the land. First of all, who reliably informed you? Uh, Well, the Archbishop has been uh, quoted in the Irish Catholic as saying that the Sisters have to get permission from the Vatican to alienate the land, that is to transfer ownership of the land and the buildings into a secular structure. And the Vatican spokesman said that, yes, uh, the sisters do have to do that. Yeah. The problem is that any land owned by a religious organisation is known as ecclesiastical land. And it falls under the ultimate uh, control of the papacy. So uh, in order to dispose of any property, they need to get permission to what's known as alienate right. uh, the property. Now, uh, my understanding is that that has not yet happened. Well, I mean, obviously, we asked yesterday before you came in and we got a statement from the Sisters of Charity saying we're confident that the smooth legal transfer of our shares in St. Vincent's Healthcare Group from the Religious Sisters of Charity is imminent. And we come to the end of a lengthy legal process involving all parties in line with canon law. We are required to seek formal approval of our decision from the Archbishop of Dublin and the Vatican and the Archbishop has approved and recommended our decision to the Vatican for formal sign-off. So we're confident of a positive outcome shortly. The process has not and should not delay the new hospital project in any way. So well, unfor- yeah, <laughs> it sounds very plausible, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does indeed. However, uh, we haven't heard from the Vatican yet, and they are the ultimate decision makers. Um, the Archbishop is but a co- small cog in a very large wheel. He is a highly respected man, and I think he's a fantastic man. I think he, he would like to be out of hospitals. He'd like to deal with issues of social well, justice and so on. Well, he's more or less said so, yes. Yeah, and that's brilliant. But basically, um, the board of St. Vincent's Hospital and the Sisters of Charity really need to produce credible documentary evidence that they have sought and have achieved uh, alienation and permission from the Vatican in order to transfer the assets into a vehicle which will allow the building of a hospital in which contraception will be prescribed, IVF will be performed, abortions will be formed. And that's the sticking issue that the Vatican are going to make a decision on. So I think until that happens... Uh, I think that the whole project should really not proceed any further. Would you stop it? I wouldn't stop it, no, because I think the hospital needs to be built, but it needs to be paused until... Because if the hospital is built and the Vatican have not agreed, well, then what we'll end up with is a hospital on ecclesiastical land and all of the women's issues will not be able to be addressed. That's a very sad thing. There's there's a certain thing here. The, The... 
Catholic Church behaved atrociously during the whole um, child abuse matter. Mm. Um, and they talked about canon law. Yes. And they talked about, well, we talked about state law. And they said that what they did under canon law, under canon law, under canon law. And in fairness to the said Archbishop Martin, mm. he really got stuck in to that issue and made it very clear that would, what would operate in that sense was the law of the land and cannot not equally happen in a hospital. Not unless the land has been alienated. Who can so, stop so it? There isn't a single hospital in the entire world built on land owned by the Catholic Church that allows any of these procedures to be performed in them. I asked for, for a single example years ago and I'm still waiting because there isn't one. So unless the land is alienated by the Vatican, uh, permission by the Vatican to alienate the land, then it shouldn't go ahead because it'll be built on Catholic land and have to adhere to Catholic ethos. But but we don't have to adhere to Catholic ethos. No, but any you're, hospital... Like your, your average <laughs> citizen doesn't have to, or the taxpayer, or no. the politicians. No, but at the moment in St. Vincent's Hospital, for example, you can't get an elective tubal ligation. You can't get an elective uh, vasectomy. Anybody, any GP who sends a woman into St. Vincent's gynae department requesting a tubal ligation for family planning services is told, look, you can't do it here. Uh, send them on into Hollow Street. So they adhere, and fair enough, they adhere to Catholic ethos, but it needs to be out in the open uh, that that's the way the system works at the moment. And any kind of statements that saying we do everything in according with the law, yes. fine, but <laughs> you don't, you're not forced to do something. So what they do is they adhere to Catholic ethos, which prevents them from doing a lot of stuff. So the, the danger is that if alienation is not granted by the Vatican, well, then the project is dead in the water. The, I was about 11 months ago, I think it was, your sister-in-law, Rona Manley, was sitting right there where you are. Mm. And she was absolutely clear that in the deal that had been done and the separation for co-location, etc., and, you know, the mastership, all of that had been covered and all of that had been agreed. And Karen Mulvey at one stage was called mm. in uh, to get that sorted as well. That's right. And now we learn uh, in the statement yesterday from the Sisters of Charity that, in fact, they do need alienation from the Vatican and they're waiting for it. So to say that everything was done and dusted and totally sorted, that they'd left everything, it was all done. And as you know, there was a clarification the next day from Hollow Street to say it wasn't quite ready. And then the next day on Sean O'Rourke, it was was going to be in the next coming weeks. So and now we learn eventually uh, after the question was put, because my book uh, In the Shadow of the Eighth is coming out this week. Yes. That in fact, they do have to get uh, permission from the Vatican. Well, what we know is they're in the process of doing it. Do you think they're lying? No, nope, I don't think they're lying. But we need to wait and see what the final decision is. If the final decision is yes, they may alienate the land into a secular structure, which has no religious influence whatsoever. That would be a tremendous victory and would have made all of my tough decisions and tough work over the last year or so, a few years in fact, worthwhile. Uh, if it's not, however, alienated, well then we know exactly what the position is. And Irish people need to understand that this is all going on in the background. Yes, but I mean, they have said here that they are required in line with, with canon law, yeah. but but that doesn't apply to the rest of us. You no, know? we're not. We're not bound to to adhere to canon law. But the sisters own the property, and they are obliged to adhere to canon law. 
That's the way it is all over the world. And that's why there isn't a single hospital in the entire world built on land owned by the Catholic Church that allows any of these procedures to take place. And they say we are required, so that is required by of mm. them, yes. uh, by, by their beliefs, uh, to go... But the Archbishop has approved and recommended our decision. Yes, it's up to the Vatican, though. I can recommend a decision to somebody, but if I'm not the ultimate decision maker, my recommendation will be taken on board. But they will also seek advice from uh, Cardinal Ocolo, who is the, or Archbishop Ocolo, who is the uh, papal nuncio. So it's not quite straightforward. I can perfectly understand Dermot Martin making that decision and making that recommendation, and I admire him for it. I think he's a, he's a fantastic guy, man. Uh, but it's the final decision is with the Vatican. The, and now uh, we know about it. The um, other thing that we got a short statement again uh, from the um, National Maternity Hospital yesterday saying the new National Maternity Hospital to be built at the St. Vincent's Hospital campus will have complete clinical independence and will provide all healthcare services available under Irish law. That's if the Vatican agrees to alienate the land and hopefully that will happen. I hope that's, I mean, I would absolutely adore that to happen. What cannot happen is that the hospital goes ahead built on Catholic land. And that is what was going to happen. And then suddenly we'd have this big brand new hospital, which is absolutely fantastic. The design is superb. The amount of work that has gone into it is staggering. But what they would end up with is a hospital that could not give full uh, 21st century uh, reproductive health care to the women of this country. Are you not afraid in some ways people think this is, is conspiracy theories gone too far? No, I'm a, I'm a great believer in cock-up rather than conspiracy because that's the usual thing that happens. In this case, however, it was just a matter of hunting down the truth. And the truth is that the sisters require... And they're doing the what they said they would do. Well, I, they may well have been forced into doing it because of all of the publicity and so on. I mean, it was said that they had been planning for years, uh, for a long time, to leave uh, the St. Vincent's. But what the religious normally do, and it's fair enough, they put it into what's known as a PJP or public juridic person arrangement, which is um, it keeps it keeps it under under the ethos. As Tom Lynch said, who's the chairman of Ireland East, and he gave a great example of the Matter Hospital in Belfast which when it was transferred into the NHS in the 1970s, they agreed to adhere to the ethos of the Catholic Church. And it still does that. So that was all done out in the open. Uh, But this, you know, it depends on the Vatican now. That's where the the final decision will be made. And hopefully they'll make a decision that will be in the interest of Irish women. Right. But we need to know it and we need to see documentary evidence that is uh, clear that that is what they have done. But if you take say the politicians, mm. say your colleagues, yeah. say the Vincent's board, mm. say the sisters, mm. they are all agreed that this is the way it should go. Well, they're only agreed now. I mean, my colleagues wouldn't have known anything about canon law. I didn't know much about it until I started investigating all this stuff. A lot of politicians don't. A lot of civil lawyers don't consider canon law when they're dealing with these issues. Yeah. And that's been made very clear. And I talk about that in the book. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, we we had it here actually um, at the beginning of all this that, that yes, they are the rules yes. of canon law. Yeah. But I keep on thinking, you know, Canon law is for people who operate under canon law. The law of the land is for all of us. Absolutely. But 
the sisters own the property <laughs> and under they operate under canon law and people need to I was at a, uh, the Edmund Burke lecture given by Mary McAleese on Tuesday evening yeah. and she laid out very clearly how canon law interferes for example with children's rights uh, in, in this country and, and indeed all over the world because mm. canon law is a universal around the world yeah. uh, law system uh, yeah. that, that uh, Catholics are supposed to have to adhere to now obviously an awful lot of Catholics don't adhere to it in their daily lives However, in the case of ownership of church property, the Vatican has the final say if they want to what's known as alienate the property or transfer its ownership into another structure. And what about if our government decided to CPO it? Well, I I, I did suggest that to Simon Harris at one stage and he just ran a mile from it. And I think it may well be because of the whole process of alienation and Vatican and also the protection of the church and church rights in, in our constitution. I understand there's very complicated issues and they just didn't want to go down that road. Right, yeah. But I mean, if the state had to, they'd have to. Well, they can't if if it's owned by the church. But if it's CPO'd? No, they can't do that because apparently because of constitutional protection. The common good? Well, there's enough land uh, other than church-owned land to to, uh, build a hospital on on non-church-owned common land for the common good. It's complicated, (laughs) but it's good that people realise this about canon law. It certainly is. You yourself have... I mean, Rona's your sister-in-law, Rona Manny. That's right, yes. You were married formerly to the daughter of the master, Mm. then the sister... who who died recently at the age of 98. Wow. Yeah, I had lunch with him about, about a month ago. And he was in fantastic form, sharp as a sharp as a nail. He he was a fantastic guy. Yeah, wonderful man. But uh, it's a very tight little grouping that Hollis Street family, so to speak, between. <laughs> we're a small society. Intermarriages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, we're a, we're a small society, and inevitably you run up against people who who you know from all sorts of. It's the same in all the hospitals around the yeah. around the place, and and in all. Or organisations, maybe not places like Google, which have got huge international presence. Yeah. But I'm sure in, in RTE, for example, there's a lot of family members working and so on. So and how's your relationship with Rona Matinee now? Well, I make the analogy of a sort of a sporting um, analogy in that uh, if you're playing in a, in a match um, or in a competition or a race or whatever, you're not exactly best friends during the competition. And But when the final whistle goes and the match is over, you shake hands and you get on with your lives. Uh, the final whistle isn't over yet. You it don't believe that's Vatican. over. Yeah. No, no, it's she, not. It's not she because believes we're waiting it for... is. Yeah, I know, but I mean, well, she's wrong because we have now admission from the sisters that they need permission from the Vatican in order to alienate them. Well, they, it's not that they're saying that they need permission. They're in the process of it, is what it says. Yeah, but they haven't got it yet. The Archbishop has approved and recommended our decision. They've taken the decision. They've taken the decision, but the approval of the decision has to be granted by the Vatican. <laughs> we can go around in circles with this. It rests with the Vatican. Canon law. Um, how did you... Uh, what, what made you go into the line of business that you're in? The obstetrics. Um, well, when I was a medical student, um, Professor Kieran O'Driscoll, who was the head of the UCD department at the time, uh, tasked us with sitting with six women having their first babies during the course of their labours. And the idea was not to look at the physical side of things and not to see how many stitches they need or what the birth is so on. Yeah. Uh, and not to look at it from our point of view, but to try and get inside the head of the women who are having the births, having the babies. And that gave me a tremendous insight into the, the stress, uh, the anxiety 
And then the tremendous switch when a woman delivers a healthy baby, the transformation from anxiety into joy is overwhelming. And so I felt, gee, I'd like to give this a go. And I enjoyed the rest of the hospital. Hollow Street was a very happy place. Mm. Consultants got on extremely well. There was a wonderful working atmosphere with the midwives having a big input into care of women. And I thought it just worked very well. So I decided to do it for six months. I got a job there, found I loved it and said, OK, this is for me. This is this is the path. Yeah. Uh, you know, nowadays to become a doctor, you need 950,000 <laughs> points. Yeah. At that time, you didn't. No, thank heavens, because I probably wouldn't be a doctor. I, You know, I was an OK student. Uh, we needed four honours when I was doing the Leaving Cert. Oh, no, you only needed two honours, actually, to get into medical school. But then there was a cull, a 50-50 cull at the end of pre-med. Yeah. And I made it through that, you know, 50-50. But I managed to go through medical school without getting honours in any any subject. But I did win medals. Um, I won a medal in paediatrics and in obstetrics. And the medal in paediatrics was uh, the Coleman Saunders medal. And Coleman Saunders was a a very well-known paediatrician. And he, in fact, had diagnosed me at the age of six weeks with a condition which I would have died from. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, when I was uh, six weeks old, I had this condition known as pyloric stenosis. And it was just basically a, a blockage at the exit from the stomach. And so I describe in the book how um, as a very young child, I would vomit and maybe not a subject for Saturday morning, but I could I could hit the wall at six feet. And my mother, who had trained as a nurse, um, wasn't very happy with the GP who told her I had constipation. So she rang Coleman Saunders directly and uh, she said, this is what's going on. He said, that's, called, that's uh, pyloric stenosis, bring him in. And then John Shanley, who was the only uh, paediatric surgeon, operated on me. And um, he saved my life. Coleman Saunders did and John Shanley. Right. And they operated on you? They operated, yeah. And I I had this big scar on my tummy, which (laughs) when I was a young fellow, if I wanted a day off school, I'd tell my mother I've got a pain and point to my scar. And she being, I was the youngest, so I was the, you know, the baby. Yeah. And uh, she... And and apart, apart from all that... You seem to have had a kind of a golden childhood in many ways. You went to St. Mary's, you loved rugby. Yes. And, no, I mean, other schools would say they're great for rugby too. Oh, yeah. So you were in an environment. I was. It was a very warm, loving family. It was a very literary family. My parents had a lot of literary friends, so books were a big part of my life growing up. Yeah. And uh, they had wonderful parties in the house with a lot of literary people. Um, my father was a fluent Irish speaker. Speaker. My mother had trained as an actress, and she, in how, fact, how did he meet her? It's a charming story. He, at the time, was a manager of Radio Erin inside in town when it was on the first floor of the GPO, I think. And he was in his office one day, and he heard this voice, and he said it was a very mellifluous voice, and he said, "I've got to meet that voice." And he turned out he took out the wrong woman first, <laughs> not the right voice. Anyway, he, he met my mother and she had been reading poetry on Austin Clark's show, uh, which was a weekly show. And she did that for 25 years. Um, and so they got married and had the children and so on. Right. And I do remember her reading um, on the Austin Clark programme and uh, me at a very young age lying on the floor looking at the radio I'm wondering how on earth did she make herself so small <laughs> as to fit inside the radio? As to get yeah. in there, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so from and you, you, you were successful at rugby. I was, yeah. I was. I was. Um, we had a great team in Marys at the time. Um, Shay Deering, who many people remember, was was the captain. I was in fourth year and uh, was lucky enough to get a space on the team. And I was the other wing forward, and Shay was a wing forward, and we went on and won the cup. 
the Senior Schools Cup and I scored a try in the final. It was the happiest day of my life Which, <laughs> up yeah, to then. The, um, I mean, that's heaven. For, for a young fellow, for, yeah, for a That's young fellow with like not a care in the world, even, that was yeah, yeah I mean, it was Nirvana quite, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Then you also your father's family had been in the mariner had been mariners, shall we say? That's so right. He, he was a civil servant. Your father. He was a civil servant. Yes, and when he retired at the first opportunity, he went off and and wrote the first dictionary of Irish biography. That was really his real love, and uh, he wrote some other books as well. But he came from a long line of mariners which we can trace back to the mid-1700s uh, out of Drada. So you so, started sailing very young. I did, yeah. He, he taught me how to sail at the age of seven and I've been doing it ever since and I absolutely adore it. It's, it's a wonderful um, pastime because if you're out at sea um, or I sailed across the Atlantic, for example, you're away from everything and you have to concentrate on what's in front of you and um, it's it's... It can be complicated. You can get into rough weather and that sort of thing. But it's yeah. a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience. And arriving in a different port, uh, you get into small, like sailing down the coast of Portugal, for example. We called into a lot of small little places that we would never have visited if we hadn't been sailing. Right. And you always get a welcome coming in from the sea, no matter where you are. Do you? You do, yeah. Because yeah. people appreciate that you've, you know, that it could have been, could have been tricky. Right. Um, but you, you managed it. Right. But then you got another stroke of luck in that <laughs> an aunt of yours, was it, was yeah. working in... It. Yeah, that was my auntie, Mina Lambert, and she had been in El Alamein, in fact, in, in the Second World War. And she came back and she ended up as the sister in charge of the operating theatre in the Meath Hospital. And when I was a medical student... I got a job there as a porter. So I'd be bringing patients up and down from the theatre. And one day I was bringing an American woman down to the theatre. We got chatting and she's, you know, I said I wanted to go to the States and she was from California. And I said, that'd be great, except they don't pay medical students over there in the summer because everybody wants to go to California. Yeah. This was in the early 70s. So she said, leave it with me. And her husband was a very rich uh, Irish-American so they paid my airfare. They put me up in a hotel in New York, in San Francisco. Then they put me up with a family in Palo Alto, where where um, where Apple are now located. And they fixed me up with a with a studentship at Stanford University Hospital. And then one weekend I was at, and they gave me a jeep to drive around. So it was phenomenal. But then one weekend I was asked to a party in Menlo Park, which is beside Palo Alto in a very wealthy woman's house. And uh, at the end of the party, she said, uh, what sort of car are you driving? And I said, I've got the Jeep. It's fantastic. It just suits me. I was also playing a lot of rugby with the team over there at the time. And she said, oh, no, you must have my car. And I said, no, it's grand. And she said, no, no, she insisted. And she brought me out and showed me the car. It was a white Mercedes 250. So I spent the summer driving around California in a white Mercedes 250. It was just, you know. I, mean, I fell on my feet. You did fall yeah, on your feet, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, that's connections, isn't it, really? It is, yeah. I mean, it was thanks to my aunt that I got the job on the Meath. Yes. Um, and it was thanks then to my conversation with this uh, woman going down in the lift for a minor procedure in the Meath Hospital that led on to this wonderful opportunity. Right. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was great. And there was an, an Irish-American, uh, or an Irish um, gynaecologist in San Jose who ran a, a rugby team and uh, the Santa Cruz Bay Seahawks. So I played with them <laughs> for the summer right. as well. Okay. It was great fun. Everything came <laughs> Everything uh, came mm. right for you. And so back to Ireland, back yes. to Hollis Street, and then you moved to England? I moved to London to Queen Charlotte's and the Chelsea Hospital, which um, are in London. 
and I was six months in Queen Charlotte's and uh, that was a whole different environment. It was quite interesting because in Hollow Street, the midwives had a big role to play in the care of women in labour. And we junior doctors did what the midwives told, the senior midwives told us to do. Yeah. And I thought that was a great system because they they knew yeah. more than we would ever know yeah. with their experience. So I learned a huge amount from the midwives training. And we also had uh, the process, what has become known as active management of labour, which is where each woman is assigned her own individual midwife during the course of labour. Um, and where if the labour is not moving, then she gets a oxytocin, a drug to help the contractions. It meant that a lot of women had normal births who didn't have normal births in other environments. Antenatal classes were part of it. But then when I moved to London, um, as junior doctors, we were exposed to make all of the decisions in the labour and also to attend an awful lot more deliveries than we were asked to do in in uh, Hollow Street. So it struck me that, in fact, midwives had an awful lot more autonomy in Hollow Street. Yeah. And there was a particular type of forceps called a Keelan's forceps, which rotate a baby's head, uh, which were used in, in Queen Charlotte's and in London and in many other places. But they had been abandoned in Hollow Street in the mid-1960s when Kieran O'Driscoll was developing the whole active management process. Yeah. And there was one awful tragedy with one of my colleagues who put on the, the Keelan's forceps and rotated the baby's head and delivered the baby stone dead. And God. The baby had suffered a traumatic hemorrhage as a consequence of the forceps. The woman herself had suffered a spiral tear of the vagina up into the cervix. She required emergency surgery and she was advised not to have any more children. Oh, so God. her first baby, born dead as a consequence of these forceps. So they said I needed to learn how to do Keelan's and I said, no, I don't. Uh, so I never use them. Yeah, how, how utterly, utterly, utterly tragic. Yeah, and that was, uh, I mean, Active Management of Labour had, had made the use of the Keelans obsolete in, in Dublin because the force of the contractions had helped to rotate the baby's head rather than putting two bits of metal around the baby's head and rotating yeah. it. Yeah. So that was a, I mean, O'Driscoll's contribution to the care of women was immense. He was, a, he was a complex man, yeah. uh, but his contribution to the care of women was absolutely... Immense. He ended up on the other side of the debate from you in the... Abortion. Well, he was a member of the pro-life campaign in the very early days in the yeah. 1980s. But at that time, uh, that campaign really passed me by, to be honest with you. I was working as an assistant master in Hollow Street and uh, our hours were, by today's standards, absolutely savage. So, for example, a weekend on duty would start on Friday morning and finish on Monday morning. So all weekend... Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then... Uh, You're saying the, you were not conscious of the Eighth Amendment? It was happening out there. The you country see, was convulsed. <laughs> I know, but you see... I and was, you were in there with babies yeah, and reproduction absolutely. and all of those things, and you say it passed you by. <laughs> no woman would ever come into any of the Dublin hospitals looking for a termination of pregnancy. They would go to England because it was an early pregnancy, So they would, and they knew it was illegal, so they'd never turn up. So we had no contact with them. Ultrasound was in its very early stages, so there was effectively no real diagnosis of fetal abnormality. And so termination of pregnancy, in a practical point of view, for a young doctor training yeah. and working these mad hours, and you go home and you sleep and you're just knackered, basically. So Well, they see, I mean, you could also say a young doctor making his way in the world, if you'd opened your beak, you might never, ever have got promotion or moved up the line. Yeah, quite possibly, yes. But I did experience um, termination of pregnancy when I was working in London, yeah. for example, and I became very good friends with uh, with another colleague um, who looked after women in the Chelsea having terminations, Chelsea Hospital for Women, having terminations for um, 
fetal abnormalities. And so I helped him with that, looking after those women and so on. So I did get an insight into it there because things, ultrasound and so on, were a lot more advanced in Queen Charlotte's than they yeah. were in, in, in Dublin. Uh, and do you mean to tell me that during that time, because, you know, there were families fighting with families and there were, mm. you know, families divided and there was war and anybody that said they were in favour of 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 not having the eighth, if you know what I mean, at that time, were accused of murders and all sorts of things. Oh, I know. Yes, I know. But, I mean, it sounds kind of weird, but the hours we were working and not being exposed to it in a personal capacity as a professional, it seemed to be happening out there. And remember, the Eighth Amendment was inserted to prevent something from coming into the country. Now, it was very, uh, obviously, subsequently things changed dramatically with advances in ultrasound and more publicity then about women going to the UK and then the importation of the pills in more recent times just changed the whole... And my attitudes obviously changed as I became more How aware. How did your attitudes change? Well, I didn't really have much of an attitude in the early days because it just wasn't impacting on me. When I was in London, I began to see it in a little bit more understanding sort of light. And then when I worked in the States, I worked in, in Houston in Texas in an academic job as an associate professor in the, at the University of Texas for four years. Uh, I saw it a bit more there although Texas has really quite draconian laws. And uh, so in the hospital I was working in, it didn't really, we didn't see any terminations. They were all done in clinics outside the hospital in the early early stages of pregnancy, the way it is in the UK. But then when I came back to Ireland, I became more involved and became master in in 1991 uh, for seven years. And during that time, then I began to have a much better understanding before that and during my mastership of women's reproductive rights. And so it grew on from there. Right. And started advocating. Yeah. I'll come back to that. But one of the things that you said you learned uh, when you were in America uh, was how savage it was about money. Yes. It it happened um, as an academic. We had a small private practice. And one of my patients was a woman with severe diabetes. And uh, her diabetes was getting out of control. And that could damage her kidneys and her eyesight. So I said to her at one of the clinic visits when I was seeing her, I said, look, you need to come into hospital for stabilisation. Now, in Ireland, that's no problem at all about that. They just come in and they're stabilised and there's no questions asked. But she said to me, look, I can't come into hospital um, because her insurance would not cover for inpatient care. It would only cover for outpatient care. So treating her as an outpatient was going to be hopeless. So I had to send her to Baylor Medical College, uh, which had a charity hospital, which was effectively run by the residents, uh, you know, the trainees, and I just thought that was savage. And also then I did a clinic, uh, the hospital, the, the University of Texas ran a clinic in a poor area of Houston as a charitable thing. And I yeah. ran that clinic for while I was there. They were all schoolgirls, they were all black. And it was like one of the South African townships in, in uh, apartheid times. And I just thought, you know, this is the richest state in the richest country of the world. And either they could not or they would not provide care for all of their citizens. And I just couldn't really face staying in that sort of environment for the rest of my life, comparing it with the civilised system we had here. Right. Okay, I'll come back to you in a second, uh, but I want to read some of the callers first. Um, uh, Peter Bolin is a man of conviction and has been a consistent voice of reason and concern during his whole Hollis Street St Vincent's debate. He hasn't changed since his days as a junior doctor, junior doctor in SVH where I was a student nurse. Uh, surely the law of the land overrides canon law. If it doesn't, something should be done to make it so. 
Which well, is the point it, I was putting to well, you yeah, earlier. I know, I know, I know. The problem is the ownership of the land and alienation of any church property requires um, canonical approval from through the Vatican. If it's over worth three and a half million roughly, they need to go to the Vatican. If it's below that figure, then they can go to the Archbishop. I suppose That's they could it. get a valuation done. <laughs> they did, unfortunately, in their accounts. And it was an awful lot more than three and a half million. <laughs> I would million. have thought so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if the land is not alienated and the hospital is built, says another caller, and we go ahead with everything under the laws of Ireland, what happens then? They Anything won't go ahead under, Yeah, they wouldn't go ahead under the laws of Ireland because there is no hospital in the entire world, I can't say this often enough, built on land owned by the Catholic Church where these procedures are allowed. And canon law applies right around the world, United States, UK, you name it, Australia. I mean, there's a great example in Australia of a woman who had a similar problem that Savita had. And the medical director of the hospital, which was a Catholic-based, faith-based hospital, yeah. said, look, we'll have to transfer you out to another hospital if you want a termination of pregnancy. And 95% of women in the same circumstances want to transfer out. 5% said, no, they'd be happy to take their chances in the Catholic-owned hospital, religious-owned hospital. So that that's... It's all over the world, Marion. Yeah, but but I mean, I'm reading here from what they told us <laughs> y- yesterday, and you you're not calling them liars. No, 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 and they're not lying. They're saying it's with the Vatican, and they haven't heard back from the Vatican yet. Uh, but another part of it says a Vince a statement from the Vince says to us, any medical procedure which is in accordance with the laws of the land can be carried out in hospitals in the Saint Vincent's Healthcare Group. They're very clever in their statements, as I said before. And, and you know, this has come out publicly in the past in, uh, in the newspapers when this debate was going on in, in a couple of years ago. The doctors in St. Vincent's Hospital came out and said, look, we cannot do these procedures. Yes. So what the people are saying who are running Vincent's is incorrect. Now, they may believe they're right and they may do what they call indicated, medically indicated tubal ligations. Declan Keane, for example, who succeeded me as Master of Hall Street, uh, did two tubal ligations over the period of 20 years uh, during his time in, in St. Vincent's. He right. said that on one of the programmes. And that just gives you an indication. At the same time, there'd be about 400 going on a year in Hollow Street. Right, OK. You know, so. uh, another one, in, oh, it's got off my screen now. Um, Marion, this is infuriating. Peter Boiling is telling us to get real. The ethos clause is tyranny. And remember, this applies to education schools too. Canon law is a state of work within, is a state at work within our state. Another one says, I would say we should bring back the nuns to sort out the health service, <laughs> Mr. Boylan. Up to a point. I mean, they look, ran religious, religious, fabulous hospitals. They, they ran did. them I well. trained in St. Vincent's. Look, when it comes to things like orthopaedics or neurosurgery, there are no ethical issues at all. It's only, in, and they run superb hospitals, clean, well organised. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but when it comes to women's reproductive health care, that's where you run into problems with, with Catholic ethos. And I think everybody acknowledges that. And um, so another one says, Peter Boylan is correct. The move of National Maternity Hospital to St. Vincent's should be put on hold. In fact, it should not happen. The move should not proceed without the land issue sorted out. And that comes from another Peter. Uh, And on the National Maternity Hospital, I think the government needs to make a CPO order ASAP. 
Now, um, the other thing is that Kieran Mulvey had said you couldn't do the CPO because there are loans on the land, so they're... Yeah, it's complicated with the banks as well is, because yeah. the banks apparently have a, yeah. have a... They mortgaged the entire yeah. site in order to build the private hospital, yeah. which, you know, that's another day's work altogether. <laughs> um, after the referendum was over, I'm talking now about the abortion referendum. Yes. You took on the task of implementing it, so to speak, um, around the country. And I was asking you how your your thinking had evolved. Yeah. Did the Savita Handelpanavar case have a profound um, effect on you? Because, it, again, you know, you get certain people in here and they'll say it had nothing to do with the eighth. It had all to do with sepsis. Yeah. And that's what was found. Uh, the HICWA came at it in a different way, which made you feel very sorry for the staff in terms of staffing levels and that yes. kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Uh, if people read the book, In the Shadow of the Eighth, um, they will see the details of the Savita case. And the consultant looking after uh, Savita made the point that she was constrained by the law. And I quote that in the book. Um, Arul Kumaran, the uh, English obstetrician, uh, President of Figo, very well respected internationally, agreed with me. Uh, the HICWA report did not have in its terms of reference anything to do with the law. So that's why they couldn't comment on the law. But yeah. it's been exploited to say, look, they, they didn't find anything on the law. They couldn't because it wasn't in the terms of reference. The conditions that the nurses were working in were absolutely appalling. There were two nurses on the nights uh, when Savita was in, in hospital. Savita was on a ward where there were a lot of very sick women. One of those two nurses was very far advanced in pregnancy. And they worked 12-hour shifts. So they came on at 8pm, went off at 8am. They had previously uh, been complaining, or complaining, I suppose, yeah. about uh, the pressures of work and saying that the amount of patients they're forced to look after is impacting on their ability to provide safe care. And that had happened way before Savita was ever admitted to the hospital. Savita was one of the less ill people in the hospital until she got very sick you know, on the Tuesday into the Wednesday, night, Wednesday morning. They had uh, women who were dying, they had women who were on morphine pumps. They had women who were with severe diabetes, uh, who were getting out of bed, who were very disruptive. They had a woman who uh, was from the Simon community. They had to make several phone calls during the night. They had a woman who died on one of the mornings. Uh, they had people coming back from surgery. They had uh, women who were in hospital with miscarriages. Any emergency that happened came in through their ward. Uh, during the night. So they were, I mean, it was absolutely disgraceful what they were asked to do. Well, funnily enough, there was a call into um, Liveline about a fortnight ago from a very nice man. Uh, his wife had had a baby the previous night, not in Hollis Street, but up in the Rotunda. Right. And um, he was talking about the fact that he was changing the sheets and he was right. doing whatever. Yeah. And he was delighted. He was, the wife was delighted. Mm. The baby was wonderful. It was all mm. happy days. But he was shocked at the level of staffing for the amount of, yes, of yeah. patients that were there. Yeah. And indeed, the master came on and agreed with him. Yes, yeah. I don't think people, until they experience the Irish health system, understand just how stretched the frontline staff are, the nurses and the doctors working at the frontline. And nurses and midwives working these extraordinary long hours, 12-hour shifts with very little break, because if you've got two nurses on a ward with a lot of, a lot of sick people, and no help coming from, from them. I mean, on the 
on the third uh, night when they were coming on duty, they both broke in, in Galway, they both broke down in tears because they knew there was going to be no help again that night and they had this huge caseload with another load of patients coming in on top of them. So, yeah, I mean, Fergal Moan, the master of the, of, of the rotunda, is absolutely right. Uh, <coughs> people are overstretched. And our results and the care that people get going through Irish hospitals is wonderful, despite uh, the difficulties that the staff are under. Yeah. I think people understand that once they get into hospital, they're, they're really well looked after. But the staff are working at the pin of their collar all the time. Well, I mean, and people will say that to you for, mm. you know, in all walks. There's a, there's a flaw of a profound nature within our system. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that it's at the front line. No, it's not. I I think the new um, head of the of the HSE, Paul Reid, has a very good track record and hopefully he'll be able to make a substantial difference. He's got a huge challenge on his hands. Huge. But, I mean, I half jokingly said to somebody the other day, said, you know, what will sort out the health service if, if all politicians and all senior servants and all senior management are banned from taking out private health insurance and forced, and their families forced to use the public health service, then I think people would realise. Because, you know, I mean, if you've got health insurance, you just don't turn up in, in the public health system, unless you're critically ill, in which case, you know, it doesn't yeah. matter where you are, you'll get looked after very well yeah. you know, in intensive care units and so on. Okay, can I just uh, come back um, mm. to the, how are matters proceeding now in terms of the changes in practice in terms of terminations right here? Uh, it has been extraordinarily successful. Um, a lot of credit that goes to my colleagues, both the GPs and the doctors working in the hospitals and also to the HSE who set up a, an excellent uh, service with the phone call system, the My Options and, and that. And uh, it is working extremely well. The numbers, as I understand it, are a lot less than anticipated. Um, Women do not have to, they don't feel guilty anymore. And quite interesting, I think um, some women will not have a termination who would have had one in the old system because by the time they organised time off work, saved the money for the trip, went over to the UK, booked a hotel, booked the airfare, if they have other children looking after, getting the kids looked after, etc. And then when they get over there, they're utterly committed and to turn back, having invested all of that effort and so on, would be very difficult for them emotionally and everywhere. Yeah. Whereas now, uh, they go to see the GPs very early on, and then they can have time to think about it and say, actually, yeah, no, maybe I won't. Yeah. And that just gives people the space in order to make a balanced decision, talking to a doctor without feeling like a criminal. Right. And um, it's a huge advance. Somebody else um, got on me to say that I didn't bring up, which I didn't, what's known as the minister's golden share. Now, I don't want to do in the heads of our listeners. Yeah, but you would. It's, but it's a kind <laughs> of a guarantee that the minister can interve- intervene. Well, I'll just briefly talk very about briefly, very briefly because it, it could be every time I read the it's a report. It's not an agreement. There's no legal. It has no legal basis. Basically, um, at board level, um, if the uh, terms of agreement want to be changed, there has to be unanimity, has to be a unanimous vote. So if you get a, a dispute and there's four members from Hollow Street, four members from Vincent's, a ninth member chosen by a panel consisting of two Vincent's and one Hollow Street, which kind of tells you where it's going. But if, for example, the Hollow Street people are unhappy, they have the right to go to the minister. The minister will say, OK, we need to change the terms. However, you can't turn, change the terms unless you get unanimous agreement of all the board members. So you've got to 
inherent conflict in how this whole right. thing is supposed to work. It's bonkers. Right. And also, I mean, the clinical uh, governance structure uh, is described in a diagram, which I'll tweet later, which shows clearly that the master reports to the clinical director of St. Vincent's Hospital and all the way up to the right. board. So yeah, but they say no, that it will be... Mm. Um, it won't be to the to, master, to the board, yeah, yeah, as, yeah, as is yeah. the... Well, that's not what's in the Mulvey uh, report. Oh, when do you think this is going to come to a head? Uh, as soon as the Vatican make a decision. Okay. Uh, but it's up to the to the minister now, the Department of Health, and maybe your Octus committees to investigate this and see, you know, when it's... And we need, you know, credible documentary evidence that the Vatican has approved, if they approve. Um, but we need to see what the outcome of that process is before anything further happens. OK. OK, last caller in. Mr Bowling delivered my only daughter, Suzanne, on New Year's Eve 1990 through a very difficult birth. And she's due our first grandchild next Tuesday. For his expertise, we're eternally grateful. And that came from Brendan Ryan. Thank Listen, you. thank you very much indeed for coming in and talking to us, Peter Bowling. And that is In the Shadow of the Eighth. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.